My pop-up is, is, is with Jesus now. And I so enjoyed growing up, going to his house, because my pop-up was a fiddle player. What you saw Lisa playing was the violin. My pop-up played the fiddle. Uh, he was in a, and if you don't know the difference, it's the same instrument, but one plays classical music, the other plays foot stomping, boot scooting, fiddle playing. Yes, exactly. He was in a bluegrass band called the Stone Mountain Bluegrass Boys. Now, how country can you get, right? And as a boy, oh my gosh, to be in that basement and to watch him and the three other guys that he, that he had a band with, and they were great. And they would play all sorts of gospel hymns and, and, and bluegrass favorites, my favorite of all time. How many people know bluegrass music? Raise your hand if you know bluegrass music. Okay, my favorite tune of all time was the Orange Blossom Special. How many people know that? The Orange, raise your hand if you know the Orange Blossom. Not so many. Okay, so the Orange Blossom Special is a fantastic song. And what it is is the person who's playing the fiddle actually mimics the, the sound of a train. And that's what you, the whole, the whole song starts off and you can envision a train starting off and taking off and, and the fiddle playing is just a going. And I would watch his hands because my, my pop-up was ex-Amish and so he had those old farmer big hands, right? And could just nimbly go back and forth. And that's how I would learn. So I, I used to could play a couple of bluegrass hymns, uh, uh, stuff on, on the fiddle. Can't do it that much because I haven't played in a while. But I would watch his hands and that's how I would learn where, that, where it would go. Now, he played by ear. He never had a lesson in his life, and it was just fantastic. And I probably should play some for you, but we don't have time for that. Just imagine how great it was. But I would watch his hands. It's something about the hands. There's a song, an uh, old country song called Daddy's Hands. And you may be thinking, it's Mother's Day. Why aren't you referencing Mom's Hands? But there, there, is, a, there is a song called Grandma, Grandma's Hands. That's an R&B uh, hit. You can listen to that. But today I'm, I'm concentrating on this. I only realized this morning when I referenced it, I'm like, oh, this probably should be grandma's hands and not dad's, but I digress. Uh, there's an old country song called Daddy's Hands. Listen to the chorus. Daddy's hands were soft when I was crying. Daddy's hands were hard as steel when I had done wrong. Daddy's hands weren't always gentle, but I've come to understand there's always love in daddy's hands. When I hear that song, I think of not only my father's hands and my grandfather's hands. I think of mine and, and what they're doing in raising my, my children. But I'm also captivated by the father's hands, the true, our father in heaven. It's not always gentle, and, it's, and it, sometimes it's corrective. But there's love there, and there's transformation there, and there's power there. There's a picture hanging in my pop-up's house. Let me show you this picture. And it's a picture, it's a, it's a frame that, a uh, picture frame that my, my parents gave to him a long time ago. And I was captivated then as I'm captivated now by the poem that's, that's written there. And this poem that's written here, I'm going to read to you in just a second. It's probably hard to read from out there. It's adapted. Actually, the original poem talks about an old violin, tattered and torn and strings not so great and nothing much to look at. And it's up on the auction block. And people who are bidding on it, they're bidding a dollar, two dollars here and there. The auctioneer can't get anyone to kind of really rise to, to, to taking this violin. And then an old man comes in and he picks up that violin and in his hands, skillful, masterful hands, he begins to play and gets that violin to play the way it's supposed to be played, to have it sound the way it's supposed to be sound, sounded, whatever, the way it's supposed to sound. There you go. 
And then the auctioneer calls for bids again and all of a sudden they're bidding to thousands and thousands on this ancient violin that now in the master's hands has really risen to its original potential and intent. Well, now this picture frame goes a little bit more biblical with it and takes a more Christian standpoint. And listen, listen to these words. The touch of the master's hand. Whenever your life is out of tune and no melody soothes your soul, look to the master whose gentle touch will bless you and make you whole. Like an old violin with so little worth, a life may be far less than grand. Oh, but may be transformed in a moment you see by the touch of the master's hand. I referenced that at my pop-up's funeral when I gave the eulogy, remembering his hands, but also just remembering the power of this poem. This poem that's in the picture that talks about how our lives could be so far gone with little or no worth, not living to our potential, that no one will pay it any mind, but in the hands of the master, the one who has created us, the one who knows you and me inside and out, and knows exactly who he's created us to be. Us in his hands? Oh, the sweet music and the, the potential and the original intent that we rise to be by the touch of the master's hand. My friends, this church, is anyone, now answer with strong emphaticness, is anyone too powerful for the Lord, yes or no? Is anyone too lost for the Lord, yes or no? Too troubled? Too immoral? Oh, you got a little weak on that one. Too immoral. No. Too far gone. That cannot be transformed by the master's hand. What an amazing things can happen when we all live as though we realize and trust that we have been touched, led, guided, and used by the master's hand. Today we see proof in the book of Acts that nothing is the answer, just as you said. No thing, no place, and no person is too powerful or too far gone to experience the power and transformation of the touch of the master's hand. And that's what I would leave you here today, to walk away with remembering the power and the transformation of the touch of the master's hand. So we are in the book of Acts, and if you're here for the first time, we are going through the book of Acts and have been doing that for the better part of a year. There's a lot of chapters. And we took, uh, we took a break here and there for Lent, that's the season before Easter, and Advent, that's the season before Christmas. And now we're, we're rounding the bases and trying to bring this thing on home. I, I promised everybody that we will be done with Acts before Christmas starts, I promise. And if we're not done, we'll just... I'll zip through five chapters as quick as I can at the end. But here we are coming towards the end of chapter 11, and we, are, we, have, we have finished the saga of Cornelius. Now, those of you who were here the last uh, few times, how many times have I preached on Cornelius? Three. Three, right? Three. Third time's a charm. We don't need to mention him anymore. We got it, right? But what we saw in that saga was the touch of the master's hand on Cornelius' family, but not only him but also on the Apostle Peter and the Apostles at large who really underestimated not only the power of the gospel to reach icky Gentiles, but that, that those Gentiles would be included in equality with the fellowship of believers. And that was the thing that was rattling their cage. Yeah, they can have salvation, but to include them in with us at the same table, oh, 
Oh, no, no. And yet, by God's grace and through the teachings of Peter and, and his realization, no, all means all, and all are here at the table. Now, Luke kind of expands the picture a little bit. I think of like an iPad where you go, bloop, and try to, well, that, that zooms in, but you know what I mean. We're expanding the picture. And we're getting a bird's eye view of the expansion of the gospel. In fact, the past three weeks and so on have really been about how the gospel is getting out of the, the center of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the, of the earth. And that's where we're at at the end of this chapter. It's getting out and, and getting out in profound ways. It's getting out in spite of the efforts of people who are trying to stop it. As we open up here in this, this section here, you'll see that folks are scattered because of the uh, persecution, the, the death of Stephen. Do you all remember that story? That's ages ago. Remember Stephen, the first martyr, he gets stoned, and everyone runs and is scattered because they're now feared of their lives. And that's kind of where we're at. This is where we're picking up the story. Luke wants us to f- focus in on some things here. And what I would say, it's the touch of the master's hand, the power of the Lord's hand upon our lives, and how that brings transformation. Let's dive in. Open up the books, uh, your Bibles, to Acts uh, 11, 19 through 30. There are pew Bibles in the back of the pews, and that's page 1093 to 1094. I really encourage us all to look into the Bible together. You can do it on your phone. If you cruise the internet, you know what happens. We shut it down. No, we don't have that power. But open that up, Acts 11, 19 through 30. Let's I'm going to read and teach here, kind of go through what's happening. All right, so Cornelius saga, it's done. Everything's great. The apostles are blown away, and and they glorified God, saying the Gentiles have also received this repentance and this this, uh, life everlasting. And so now we turn to what's called, in my section of the Bible, the church in Antioch. Antioch's going to be a very, very important place. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. So circle that, if you will. But here we are at verse 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, circle Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Okay, so Stephen is martyred. Luke is bringing us back to that. Stephen's martyred and the church is scattered. And not only scattered, very much afraid of their lives. And this here, this little verse here is the embodiment, my friends, of the Great Commission of what it truly meant. You all remember the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. It says, um, therefore, now go as you are going, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, surely be with you to the end of the age. I kind of truncated that. But it's this idea of as you go. Go and share the good news and make disciples. This is the embodiment of that. Why? Because these people who are scattered to the ends of the earth, who are running afraid of their lives, can't help but be compelled to stop any Jewish person that they can and say, I have to tell you of what's going on, of what happened in my life and this story that you need to hear. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, and we read it here in present day, we never, do we ever think that our as-our-going lives may be dangerous, that our as-our-going lives may result in our death? I don't think anyone thinks about that. 
when they read that, especially in our country in our time period, because there's no impending death for sharing the gospel. We might get made fun of. We might get ridiculed. We may even become another to somebody and, and not be invited anymore because you're, you're a holy roller and I don't want you in my house judging me. I mean, that could happen. But death, death, death doesn't necessarily, is not a part of that in our lives. It is for different places in the world right now, different places in the world of people who are sharing the gospel are doing so in fear of death and yet still do because the power of that transformative word of God, of that transformative truth has taken hold of their life so much that death is whatever. I am here persevering and running this race for Christ. I know that my eternal destination awaits and that this here is just momentary. And I will do everything I can to get more and more people to be a part of it. These people who are scattered, afraid of being stoned and persecuted as they are going, they're taking every Jewish person they can to make sure that they know about the good news. Running and fearing for your life is definitely in the realm of possibilities for as you go. Now, verse 20, it's not just the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, which is another word for Greek people or Gentile, and preaching the Lord Jesus. Now look at what's happening here. Some folks, again, irresistibly compelled about this great news, are seeing and running into other lands and people that aren't inherently Jewish, that are not born Jewish. And yet that doesn't stop them. That doesn't stop them from sharing the good news. But here's the most, and that's not, that's not new to us. We've been studying that in Acts, right? But look at what the difference is. When Cornelius was preached to, a Gentile Roman centurion, who preached to Cornelius? Peter. And what is Peter's title? He's an apostle, right? He's the apostle. He's, that's a big deal. We all should want to have someone like Peter preaching to us. Thanks be to God, right? Lucky for you, you got me. Uh, no, uh, you all want, you know, the, the Apostle Peter, right? When the eunuch was preached to, who did that? Does anyone remember? Philip, and what was Philip's title? He was a deacon, I believe, right? Yeah, he was a deacon. He was one of the deacons, one of the seven. Who's preaching now? Those people. Everyday people. If anything, that's probably the most profound thing here in this text that Luke is shining a light on. We could have the most stellar, awesome pastor up here preaching, which you do, uh, the stellar, awesome pastor preaching up here. And all that's going to be good for is maybe a couple of guests coming in and maybe that. But to get lives changed, to get people to really experience the grace of Christ, it's y'all's preaching. It's everyday people living out their everyday lives, doing everything they can to share the gospel. You all have the word of the Lord. That's what the Christ has promised. You who have a faith in Christ and believe in him. And you have a message to share people, even if it's just one person. Everyday people. And so that's what's happening. Folks are just sharing their heart and they're coming to this place called Antioch. What is so important about Antioch? I've said it several times. Antioch, just in case, there's a little history lesson here. 
Antioch is the third biggest city in the Roman Empire at this time. I think the first one is Rome. The second one might be Alexandria. And Antioch is the third. And both Rome, all Rome and, and Alexandria and Antioch, they all have different things about their city that are very, very uh, important and unique to them. Antioch, to put it as best as I can, sits on the Mediterranean. It's just north, due north of Jerusalem. It sits on the Mediterranean, so it's got all the sea commerce and things like that. But the thing that puts them on the map is, um, in our terms, what we would say, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Antioch would be what happens in Antioch stays in Antioch. Antioch, not so much a hotbed city of gambling, but a hotbed city of prostitution, immorality, debauchery, debauchery, uh, life of debauchery kind of thing, defunct lives, giving in to your lustful desires, and it's okay. And they actually kind of attached uh, a religion to it, so it's a little cult-like as well uh, in terms of that. And it's a huge commerce. There's a lot of money to be had in this city about that. So it's the understanding of the Roman Empire. If you want to go for a good time and do whatever it is that you want to do, you travel over to Antioch and no one asks any questions. Now, for all intents and purposes, as I studied and, 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 and heard what Antioch was about, this would not seem like a place, would it, where a revival of souls would happen. You think, you know, in Las Vegas, are you thinking that a church planted in the center of Las Vegas is going to do great things? Not at first, or maybe, maybe God can do crazy things. God seems to like to work in the impossibilities, doesn't he? Isn't it interesting that sometimes it's the most difficult places and the difficult people that see the most fervent expressions of the Holy Spirit? Isn't it great that in those most impossible places, God does the unthinkable and produces a harvest of souls like we're going to see in Antioch? It reminds me of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel says, Oh, come the four winds and make these dry bones live. Let these dead people come to life. And that is what's happening here in Antioch. How is it happening? Well, by the power of the master's hand. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. That is such a beautiful statement, a statement that we all should covet as a Christian community, that the hand of the Lord was with us, taking this city and this people and this place of lustful indulgence and transforming it by the gospel to have a community of faith and believers there. How do you transform a people like this? How do you transform a place that is just so much a hotbed of sin and lustful desires? How do you do this? How do you get them to understand that there is this way through Jesus and belief in him, a rejection of your sinful desires, repentance, and then being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit? How does that happen? When I looked at that, and, and I'm giving it away, you're going to see there's a revival of souls here in Antioch. When I looked at that and I thought, this, it just seems so impossible. It, it reminds me of my son, Caleb, who I brought up here for announcements. And it reminds me of if, if Carrie and I, just because, for giggles, we decided to say to Caleb, listen, every night from now on, you can have just dessert. You can have chocolate cake, M&Ms, whatever you want. Eat dessert, and that's what you're going to have for dinner every night. Oh, my gosh, he would be ecstatic, right? 
How, how wonderful is that? But then what happens if after maybe a year of this, we say to Caleb, Caleb, we realize that this, this way of life, this, this way of eating is, is killing you. This is, not, this is not healthy. This does not produce freedom. This is producing obesity and diabetes. You know, you don't, don't need to do that, right? And we say to him, you know what? Instead of dessert, there's a better plate of food. One that's full of nutrients and a balanced diet. And we give him this plate full of, of broccoli and maybe some nice grilled chicken and, 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 and rice or something like that. And we say, here, here you go. How's Caleb going to react to such a thing, right? Where's the chocolate? And I think, and I look at a place like Antioch that is full of anything can go. The uphill battle for a person sharing Christ. How do you have to say to a people, I've got a better plate of food that on the surface you're looking at it thinking, how is that better? And yet it's a plate of food that's going to produce health and freedom and, and forgiveness of sins and all, and all the things. Well, by ourselves, obviously, we cannot do that. That's not a new teaching, but it's by the touch of the master's hand. It says, the hand of the Lord was with them, and he has the power to take defunct lives, lives filled of debauchery, and turn them into the masterpieces they were created to be, to sing and play that fiddle the way the tune it's supposed to, to be played, to, to look at everyone and say, you have worth. I think that's one of the biggest things that Christians struggle with. Or that people who don't know Christ struggle with is that, am I worthy? Am I worthy enough for such a love that Christ can give? And on this, uh, truth be told, you know, we're not. But he does it anyways. And when he guides us and touches us by his hand and grabs us to be a part of his family, as he pulls us up out of the dirt, he says to us, you are worth it because I'm worth it. You can be and, 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 and live in the way that I created you to live as long as you put your faith in me by the touch of the master's hand. So powerful was the message to these people, it affected their very energy at Antioch. It was palpable. The community of faith, their song was infectious, and it was, it was creating some, some newsworthy things. You see, as this community continues to build, and as this community in Antioch continues to become strong and showing signs of the Holy Spirit in their midst, word travels up to Jerusalem. Now, you remember when I used to, I used to refer to the Pharisees as the religious what? Muckety mucks, right? The religious muckety mucks who know everything and yet they can't, you know, in spite of their, their face kind of thing, right? And the apostles in Jerusalem, they're... I don't want to put them in that wagon just yet, but they, they dance on the line just a little bit. Anytime we get power as, as humans, we like that, no matter how devoted we are to the Lord, right? So word travels up to Jerusalem. Hey, Jerusalem, this city here in Antioch, this hotbed of sin, there's things happening down there, or up there, down there, whatever. There's things happening in this city where Holy Spirit is moving. And the apostles go, huh, ain't that something? Okay, why don't we send Barnabas? We like him. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's a good guy. Why don't we send him to Antioch? Hey, Barnabas, find out what's going on. Find out what's going on and, and re kind of report back to us if this is true or not. 
And I wrote down, how often, oh church leaders, when things are happening by the Holy Spirit that are outside of our control and outside of our activity, how often do we, well, let's check the validity of that and try to control what's going on. I think that's what Jerusalem's doing. I think they're thinking, uh, Antioch, really? Let's go see and find out. But remember, the touch of the master's hand is powerful, powerful enough to get you to reject that plate of dessert for that plate of nutrient-rich food. And it's also transformative. So verse 23, Barnabas goes to Antioch. When he came and he saw, circle the word saw, S-A-W, the grace of God, he was glad. Again, the ESV drops the ball. That word glad is he rejoiced. He was ecstatic. And he exhorted or encouraged them all to remain faithful or to abide richly in the Lord with a steadfast purpose, with a steadfast heart. When he came, he saw the grace of God and he was ecstatic and he encouraged them to abide in the Lord. What does it mean to see the grace of God? That's kind of a hard thing to do, right? Because the grace of God is something that happens to you. The grace of God happens to you, and if you receive the grace of God, it's supposed to show up in your, in your actions, your life, your attitudes. And so sometimes that's hard to kind of pinpoint as, as seeing. But it says here Barnabas goes and he sees the grace of God. That word see there is translated more so he discerned. He discerned that the grace of God was filling this place. We as a church should long for that when people come into our midst, they can discern and realize the grace of Christ moving in this place through our hospitality, through our service, through our authentic worship, and through how we live it out, out in the world. I want people to come into Bethlehem just like, boom, bump into it and be like, this is a place. People who are on fire for Christ. I want to be here. I want to know more. And that's what's happening in places of all places, Antioch. In the hotbed of sin and lustful desire, people are rejecting that, what probably feels like freedom, to come into the presence of the Lord. And Barnabas sees it. He discerns it. And not only does he see and discern it, he rejoices and he encourages them. Literally, Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. And instead of taking notes and sending it back to Jerusalem, what does he do? Well, the scriptures tell us that more and more people are being added to this community. So much so that Barnabas can't handle it on his own. It's too much for him by himself. And yet he's still excited and still wants to encourage them. And so what does he do? He doesn't run back to Jerusalem for whatever reason. He goes to Tarsus to find who? Paul. Paul, who was there and was studying and learning and preaching, he goes to try to find that guy and bring him here to Antioch to help him out. And by some, whatever reason, Paul comes. Now, scriptures say that Barnabas went to seek out or to look for Paul, and that again is very weak. That word look means he hunted Paul. He went on a mission to go find Paul and bring him back. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now get this, they stay for how long? What does it say? A full year, a whole year, Paul and Barnabas stay in Antioch with these people, encouraging them and equipping them. 
This is another great highlight of this text. It shows us what true discipleship is. Discipleship is one of those churchy words that we throw around and we think we understand it and we really don't. We think that our discipleship is because we signed up to help out at gem time or we go to a Bible study or a small group. And discipleship can kind of happen there, but discipleship at its core is a with me principle. Say that, with me principle. And these two guys are modeling the type of discipleship that brings equipping and encouragement and and a harvest of souls. They stay there for a year. They commit their lives to be in their midst, to teach and equip as best as they can and encourage this little area in Antioch. And Antioch is going to grow to be a source of a place where missional journeys are being launched. It's, it's going to rival Jerusalem. And they stay there for a year to encourage these folks in the ways of the Lord. Isn't it amazing by the touch of the master's hand, both on Antioch and Paul's life. What do I mean? Antioch, a city that everyone would have probably thought, oh, there's nothing good there. And there's no way that those people are, are, gonna, are gonna respond to the gospel. You know, they've done so much and their lives are so plagued by sin, there's no way that God would send people of all people, Saul. Saul in whom the Jewish community looked at and said, oh, there's no way. Or the Christian community, oh, there's no way that this Saul who persecuted us, who came after us and killed us, that God would ever use him in such a way. Look what God does. He sends the unthinkable to the unthinkable place and multitudes of people are being added. Is there anything impossible for the hand of the Lord? No. I think God does that on purpose. I think he works in the impossible areas so that we don't get too big for our britches, so that we realize that it's he who's doing the work and not us. Because if it was just us on our own, there's no way that we could come after Vegas and get them to have a revival. That's only by the hand and by the touch of the master's hand of the Lord. Okay, so let's bring this to an end. Let's tie a little bow on it, right? So multiple people are being added to this church, this community. It's one of the first times Paul or Luke uses the word church, which means a community, an ecclesia, a community of people. And it is the first time that the disciples of this area are called what? Christians. We hear the word for the first time. And that means that they are creating such a stir in this area. They are doing such profound things. They are causing so much attention that they decide, they, the powers that be, the community, decide to call them Christians. That if you add an I-A-N at the end of a person's name, there's some military connotations to it. It means that if I was a Christian at that time, it's understood that I'm under the lordship and the authority and the guidance of this guy named Christ. That's how well they're living these lives out in Antioch that they're called Christians. Christians, that they're called Christ followers. Verse 27, now in those days, prophets came down to Jerusalem to Antioch, because Antioch is still, <laughs> let's go send missionaries there, right? And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that, all, that there would be a great famine in all over the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. 
right here at the end to tie a bow on, on, on how transformative the touch of the master's hand is, is that this community whose energy was so profound that Barnabas can just discern that the grace of God is with them. Now when trouble hits the land, they do exactly what the church in Acts 2 and Acts 4 did. They gathered up all their resources and they gave to people as they could, those who had need. And it sets up now a pattern for a Christian community and how we're supposed to act, to be devoted to the word of the Lord. It taught them for a year to be devoted to that word, to practice the sacraments, baptism and, and, and the Lord's Supper, and to give so generously and so lovingly to others. Because remember, Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by how? By how you love. They will know you are Christians by our love. A community without the touch of the master's hand is a community that is dry bones, not moving, stale. Oh, may that never be something that's attached to us. May someone never come in through these doors and think, oh, it's, it's a little dry in here. But may they see the touch of the master's hand that empowers us and transforms us by the gospel to worship fully, to serve generously, to love graciously, all the things. So that when people come into this place or come into your company as preachers in the world, they will ask you about the hope that you have and you will share with them the truth of Jesus Christ. Even if it's just a one person, affect one life by your joy and watch how God will move in those ripples. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, it's so easy to say all this and it may seem lofty, it may seem just religious garbage goop but your love is real your hand is real your transformation is real may we never forget that we are led by guided by and transformed by your loving hand on our hearts opening it up to receive the truth of Jesus Christ your son and may we never hold that away, being ashamed of it, being afraid to share it. God, may it bring us, skip to our step to share it with others. May we live in such a way that people can discern the grace of God just by our actions. And let us see a harvest of souls and even the most unlikely of places. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.